You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. Let me live a life of faith. Let me die thy people's death. We've been looking for a number of weeks, and I plan to continue looking at the theme of after death, what, in the Scripture. We've looked at the intrusion of death as an alien presence in God's creation. We've looked at God's answer to it by the cross and resurrection. Today, we want to begin to consider a particular word that helps us look at this subject. I was talking about my message with Pastor Light the other day, and he said, you're you're linking together three different texts from the letters of Timothy, and you can turn to 1 Timothy. And uh, he said, essentially, you're doing a word study. And that kind of helped me because it made it gel in my mind that he was right. What you can do as I read is look for the word. You'll probably figure it out. It's actually in the sermon title, so it's not a real mystery. But the same word is given as either an adjective or a noun in each of three short Scripture passages I'm going to read today. 1 Timothy chapter 1 is the first, verses 15 through 17. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Same letter, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Uh, I've lost my place. All right, there it is. I'm actually going to begin and read. uh, It's a little difficult to know where to start here, but I'm going to begin in the middle of, of verse 13 or near the end of verse 13. A sentence begins there. 1 Timothy 6, 13. I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame, Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal, who lives in inapproachable light, whom no one can, whom no one has seen nor can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. Then one more. Real short, and this time I also begin in the middle of a verse, but at the beginning of a sentence. Second Timothy, probably across the page for you. Second Timothy 1, verses 9 and 10. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light 
through the gospel. This is the word of God. Let us consider it carefully together and may God, the spirit, be the one who instructs us. I think you know that the ancient Egyptians had an intense interest in life after death. This was shown, of course, in the way they concentrated on preserving the physical body and burying alongside it practical implements of daily life in order to try in their minds to assure some comfort in an afterworld. Buddhism contains no formal concept of a soul, as we think of it, migrating from one existence to the next. Buddhism actually has no concept of a great God in control of all things either. Instead, in the Buddhist idea, every human being lives in a state of perpetual flux and change. They would say, you are on the great wheel of becoming. And on that wheel of becoming, there isn't necessarily a definite objective in sight in the future, except some of Buddhist thinking would say a blissful extinction. Chinese Taoism views nature as abounding with many spirits. There are different kinds of spirits. The Shen spirits are, uh, or the Shen, yes, Shen are good spirits, and the Kwai are evil spirits. Now, the best of the Shen spirits are your ancestors who hover close to you and protect you as their living descendants and therefore uh, ought to be respected and even prayed to. Hinduism gives us a whole set of different ideas and promotes reincarnation or what some call the transmigration of souls that are being reborn into other living forms. So there, your ancestor could actually be upon the earth today as another human being or even as an animal or an insect. The ever fascinating subject of the immortality of human souls has produced hundreds, thousands probably, of imaginative concepts like these few examples I've given you out of the endless creativity of man-made religions. Now, this is the fifth week that I've spoken about biblical views of life after death, and it's the first time I give attention to the important word I spoke about. The word is immortality or immortal. I need to say something that to some of you will come as a great shock, maybe so great that you will be sure that I'm guilty of heresy, but I I tell you that the Scripture stands with me. The shock for some is to be told that the Bible's doctrine of life after death does not support the common popular idea many people have that we all as human beings innately possess immortal souls. The popular idea about my immortal soul, the idea that there's some part of me which is naturally eternal, regardless of any relationship to God, is not a biblical idea. The fact, the idea, the the thought that we we mostly have, that my personality, if you want to call it that, survives bodily death, regardless of faith in God or lack thereof, is not a biblical idea. In fact, Christian faith trusts in the God of resurrection, 
not in the bare notion of immortality. I began to show you last time that the resurrection of Jesus Christ powerfully transfers people of faith in Him into a new hope and actually into a new standing and a new state of existence. And so for them, it is not a matter of looking to some gloomy brand of immortality as was sought after by the mummified kings of Egypt, but rather the vitality and the dynamism and the wonder of a hope in a Savior and God who, in fact, is living. Now, maybe you don't think about the fact that the Protestant Reformation was actually about issues of life after death. We think the Reformation was about justification. It was about the authority of Scripture. But actually, one of the signal causes of the Reformation was Luther arriving at a point where he couldn't stand it any longer. And in his 95 theses posted at the Wittenberg Church, he challenged the church to try to come and show him some biblical justification for the utterly foolish, unbiblical, ridiculous idea that payment of a sum of money called an indulgence to some bishop of the church could release a soul of a relative or friend from a non-existent place, unbiblical place, called purgatory. So the idea of the afterlife was part of the Reformation. And the medieval church had some strange ideas, unbiblical ideas, that had to be challenged. Today's message is rather unusual, I realize, because in trying to help you think about this subject of immortality, I have drawn already from three texts, and not just one paragraph or verse, but actually something in each of the three is what I want you to try to hold in mind today. And it is indeed, in a, in a manner of speaking, a word study. You might look at the last text I read, and hear 2 Timothy 1.10 declare this, Our Savior, Christ Jesus, has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Immortality is a property of the gospel of Jesus Christ, says Paul there. It is not something that has always been in the world and and the gospel just comes along and maybe adds something to it. It literally brings it to life and light and lets us know it and possess it. Now, it's vital today that we think about life after death from a careful biblical viewpoint. The common viewpoint today is to rely on man's suppositions or ideas or visions or propositions or philosophies And that's why you end up with so many strange, strange things that float around about what comes after this life. We want to look to Scripture and rely on Scripture. And the Scripture says only the gospel of the cross and resurrection of Jesus opens the door to an eternal immortality. That's where we'll find the meaning of this important work. First of all, today I I speak to some extent, from the Bible's silence when I make this my first proposition. The Bible does not teach the common notion that all humans naturally have immortal souls. The Bible does not teach the common notion that all humans naturally have immortal souls. It's widely held. You may, have, you, you may still be shaking and thinking, he's wrong. I've always believed that. I've always been told that. I would ask you, 
find it in the Word of God. The human possession of immortality, if indeed it's simply something we have by nature of being human or because we've been born and are walking around in this world and are thinking persons, self-conscious persons, is an idea that actually tends to minimize the uniqueness of the victory of Christ by rendering it a little bit superfluous if we're going to survive eternally anyway, regardless of what Christ has done. This brand of immortality that most people hold to as their right or their possession for being human has actually evolved and taken different forms over many centuries. One of the motives for it, or the roots of its development, you might say, is based actually on wish fulfillment. We are self-conscious people. We think in different ways than animals or plants do. We are conscious of God. We have this, this part of God's nature in us that lets us extend ourselves in directions that other life forms cannot do. And so we think to ourselves, well, here I am. I have this personality. I have this God consciousness. I have this ability to reason and communicate. And, and so you can't tell me that, that this wonderful thing that is my life, however you defined it, is just a little candle's flame that's going to be snuffed out one day. That just doesn't seem possible. And we say, well, at least I certainly wish it isn't that way. I hope it isn't that way. This essential part of me must continue because I want it to. And that's one of the real roots of this whole idea. At every funeral of a beloved friend or family member, we sit there and think the mystery all over again, don't you? Think sometime, where is he right now? Where is she? And our natural instincts and desires say, well, they're in a better place. You know how many times you hear that. It doesn't seem to matter how the person has lived, what they have believed, or anything else. Somebody will tell you he's in a better place, even though that is not provable. That's what we want to believe. Others would argue not just from their wishes, but from a more moral concept that there must be soul survival because of the, the injustice that's in this world, the cruelty that's in this world. In other words, this argument says, look, uh, you know, everything on this planet is very unfinished. We have the Holocaust. We have Hitler. We have Saddam Hussein wiping out his own people. We have Stalin. We have Mao. We have all these terrible things. We have racism. And, and it's never put right in this life. And therefore, if it really is a moral universe, there has to be a final stage in which somehow the morality of it all gets sorted out. And there's justification. Otherwise, it seems to defeat the very idea that there could be a just God, right? It's all just very incomplete and inconclusive if there's not a judgment and some final sorting out. Well, there's another root, actually, for the common idea that immortality is a human possession, regardless of faith in Christ. And it comes from a particular source. It comes from Greek philosophy. I could really bore you here. I could set off more snores than you would imagine if I wanted to go into this. I was a philosophy major in college, so I'm a dangerous person. I, I once took an entire semester course in Plato, most boring course I ever took, although I think it had some value. 
This concept of the immortality of the human soul as a natural thing comes largely from Plato. Reduced to a few sentences, what Plato taught was that the soul of man was the good part of us, the perfect part, the rational thinking part. In fact, Plato said our souls are preexistent from this life. That is not a biblical notion, by the way. But Plato said it. And on the other hand, he said there's our bodies. Now, our material bodies are basically bad. They're full of evil lusts. They're corrupted. They're weak. And here we have this perfect thinking, rational soul that's sort of held into prison of the bad body. So what we want is for the perfect, rational soul to be loosed, released from its prison, and to fly free. So death for Plato was an idea that the soul, the great part of us, the noble part of us, was finally freed from the prison of the evil body. Well, unfortunately, early Christian theology was fairly influenced by that, even at the expense of Scripture. And for centuries, that kind of thinking filtered into the church. You could see how, for example, just one example, that would lead to the thinking of flesh is bad, spirit is good. Therefore, for example, priests should not be married because sex is bad. And thinking like that came in. It was really largely from Greek philosophy, not from the Bible. Scripture instead views us as whole persons and says that God's aim in redemption is to restore the soul and the body and the mind in one great whole in the resurrection reality at the end of all things. The Bible does not see as our goal that, that we would fly free from a prison jailhouse and be disembodied, ghostly, vaporous souls floating somewhere in the eternal ether forever. That is not the biblical goal. Resurrection is the goal. And it's quite different. Now, we might ask this question. Is there anyone who ever had an inherent, innate immortality? And if you would think about this, I believe many of you would come up with the answer and say, well, yes, I think Adam and Eve had potentially immortal lives, didn't they? It would seem to be implied in every way by what we read of their creation in Scripture that God created these two, our original parents, to fellowship with himself. His smile was on them. He gave them this garden to enjoy, this earth to enjoy, and said, tend it, walk with me in fellowship, do these things, we'll live in partnership together in so many words. God created man and woman with the potential to be immortal. But it was their grievous sin, of course, as we've already traced, that introduced the judgment of both bodily and spiritual death into Eden and thereby shattered that access to immortality. The soul that sins shall surely die, says the Scripture. And so what was potentially humanity's gift was lost in the fall. The only human beings who could ever be said to have that immortality as a real potential dwelling within them would be our first parents, and they lost it. And so Paul discusses final resurrections of our, our body at the return of Christ. We looked at 1 Corinthians 15 last week. I point you to a verse we didn't look at, verse 53 of 1 Corinthians 
15 that talks about what will finally happen, where it says, what is mortal of us will be clothed upon with immortality. I think I'll have a chance to comment more on that verse in a future week. But you see, God is saying, I'm going to have to put back immortality because it was lost. In a real sense, then, the ultimate goal of resurrection in Christ is to put us back where Adam and Eve began. But we're not there right now. Now, second of all, I would put before you these two verses, 1 Timothy 1.17 and 6.16. They have something in common. I read a few introductory verses for each, but it really was those verses were, were my interest in reading. 117 of 1 Timothy and 616. Each of these verses functions like a benediction. You know what a benediction is? A, a, a word of blessing. A sort of final word that speaks praise to God and, and blessing upon those who worship Him in a true way. Now from those two benedictions comes a second point that I state this way. Immortality is the innate possession of God alone and of those to whom God gives it. Immortality is the innate possession of God alone and those to whom he gives it. 117 of 1 Timothy makes a great statement. Let me read it for you once again. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That one statement and the wonder it contains about God sponsored a wonderful, momentous conversion in American history. It was no less than Jonathan Edwards who said this verse was a verse that arrested his attention one day when he was about 16 or 17 years of age. Now unto the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever. Amen. Edwards wrote in his diary as a 16-year-old man, teenager. Here's what he said. As I read those words, there came into my soul and diffused all through it a sense of the glory of the divine being. And I thought to myself how excellent a being God is and how happy I would be if I might simply be swallowed up in him forever. How many 16-year-olds write things like that in their journals? Not too many, I don't think. Edwards had a great mind, of course. But he was dwelling here on a core concept of the greatness of God. And he said, look at what this verse tells us. God is eternal. He has no beginning or end. He's immortal, meaning he is unable to suffer, decay, or die. And he's invisible. No other being has those inherent characteristics. And those characteristics cause me to worship God without limit, Edwards said. Now, the second benediction I mentioned, 1 Timothy 6, it actually begins in 15 and and spills into 16, echoes 117. Here's what this second one says. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, listen to this phrase, who alone is immortal, who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. 
You see, Paul here again was stating the uniqueness of God, the otherness, for want of any better word, the way in which God is completely different from what we are, His holiness. And he said, death and decay and winding down do not apply to God in any sense whatsoever. In fact, he's the only one who possesses immortality. Dr. Phil Riken, a friend from Philadelphia, has a comment on this. It helps give a key definition of the the word for immortal or immortality, which the basic meaning is incorruptible or, or not susceptible to decay. Here's what Phil Riken said. Unlike the milk in your refrigerator, God does not have a use-by expiration date. I like that. God does not have a use-by expiration date. In other words, the laws of physics are telling us that even the universe itself is gradually, gradually winding down a principle called entropy. You certainly know your body is winding down. If you don't, you're just not old enough yet. You will find it out when those joints just don't move so well and those muscles are a lot weaker and your balance isn't so good and your memory is, you don't even know where it went to. Your body's winding down. Your body's decaying as it moves toward death. But God, you see, isn't in this category. God has all the energy, all the vibrancy, everything that he ever was, he is now. We have two two clocks in our house that both audibly tick. We like that sound in the house, a grandfather clock that needs winding. Three weights have to be pulled every week. I usually do it on Sunday. And a cuckoo clock, that one has to be wound every single day. And if they're not wound, they stop. And every once in a while, we forget and they do stop. God doesn't need winding up. God doesn't have a use-by date. He is not subject to decay or decline and certainly not death. He isn't cooling off. He isn't growing old. He's just as holy, powerful, loving, wise, merciful, and everything else today as he ever was. That's at the heart of being immortal. Being immortal also means that God is the very source of life. You could put alongside this Psalm 36, 9, where David says to the Lord, with you, O Lord, is the fountain of life. Where does life come from? You, God. I can't talk about life without talking about you because you're the origin of it. And so if immortality is a trait, God has the exclusive franchise on it. He has it, and those to whom he deigns to give it. And, of course, the Bible says he does give it. He gives it to whom? We talked about this a little bit last time. To anyone who believes in the risen Son, Jesus Christ. John 3, 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. You could fill in immortality there. Whoever believes in the Son has immortality. Whoever rejects the Son will not see life. For God's wrath remains on him. By raising Jesus from the dead, God opened a way to give immortality to believers in Christ. Trust in Christ's resurrection is the way to immortality. It is not a natural right. That's the thesis I hope you would hear today. 
In Christ and in him only, we gain back what Adam and Eve lost in Eden, the potential of immortal lives. Now, today I want to trace some applications. I actually have more time for application than I often do. I have several of them. One is this. The humanistic concept of immortality that says we have this innately, it belongs to us because we're human, implies that we already have in us a ticket to life beyond the grave, and that seems to make eternity rather self-determined, almost as if saying it's an extension of my present life now that I already have. But you see, the biblical doctrine of immortality coming from the resurrection of Christ does not make us independent in that way. It makes us dependent completely. Immortality comes from trusting in the resurrection of Christ. That's the only way you ever receive it. It doesn't come from saying, well, I'm a human being. I'm going to live forever. It comes as God's divine gift, not as an innate possession. Second application, the Bible in teaching that immortality comes by the resurrection of Christ would tell us that there's more to it than mere survival of what we might call bare souls or naked souls. Actually going to run into that topic in 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul actually speaks about his soul being unclothed. What the Bible teaches is a more holistic renewal of mind, soul, and body in a future great resurrection. And the question is then, Are you learning about your future hope from Plato or from Christ? You see, Christian hope, unlike Plato, does not condemn materialism. It does not condemn this material creation. It does not condemn the human body and say you're only evil and and boy, you better get rid of that body because it's just terrible to have it. No, your body is not inherently evil. No material object is, is inherently evil. It's all in how you use it before God. The Bible says we must respect our bodies as temples of the Holy Spirit. And it further says that our final glorification will not be consummated until even this planet, this wonderful creation, is renewed and made entirely new as a new heaven and a new earth. Only then will we inherit recognizable, somehow continuous with the personality we have now. That's the marvel of it. Deathless bodies that will be like Christ's own. We'll take time to talk about that in future weeks. A third practical conclusion, I believe, is that biblical immortality overrules all the superstitious and silly ideas you can encounter on this subject There are whole sections in the secular bookstores devoted to it. I've often talked about these bookstore sections. They're called spiritual life or spirituality or religion or varieties of things. Even the psychology section will have these things. You'll see all kinds of forms of ideas about reincarnation. Surveys show that many, many people who call themselves Christians think that reincarnation is a parallel belief. They also believe in reincarnation. That's absurd. People believe in spiritualism, even though that may be a little outmoded in this day. The idea that there are spirits rapping on the walls or the tables or rattling chains in the attic at night. Leave spiritualism alone. Young people, leave Ouija boards alone. I don't know what those things are exactly. I only know I was once scared by one of them. 
sure that there was something evil present when I experimented with it in college one time with with a friend. Maybe it's a tool of demons, maybe it isn't. Leave it alone. And along this line, I would admonish you to take great caution about the many published reports you will find in bestsellers about near-death experiences of people in which they will claim their souls left their bodies and they had great visions of things to come or they stood back and could see the world as if they weren't in it anymore but then returned to it. You know, Paul actually talked about such an experience one time, but he was very wary about drawing conclusions from it. And you should be wary of that too, that pure subjectivity of saying, I had this feeling, I had this vision. Don't go with visions. Go with the Word of God every time. Fourthly, you might ask, well, wait a minute. If you've said immortality only belongs to Christians who trust in the resurrection of Christ, isn't it true that the non-believer without resurrection life does somehow survive death and experiences a general resurrection of the dead and divine judgment and suffering in hell? The answer is yes. There is some kind of survival for the unbeliever, and I'm actually getting ahead of myself once again. We're going to talk about this. But for right now, suffice it to say, what a non-believer experiences beyond the grave should not in any sense be thought of as immortality. Why? Because it isn't the life of God. It really is living death. In fact, Scripture in one sense calls it the second death, the death of the soul. You shouldn't apply immortality, the joy of being united with God in fellowship to a soul that is cut off from God. The unbeliever's soul does somehow survive death, yes, only to begin experiencing woe, regret, pain, and entering into a domain of something disastrously worse than anything ever known upon this earth. So the afterlife of the unbeliever is not immortality. Immortality implies the breathless, wondrous joy of beholding Christ and living in fellowship with God. The unbeliever does not do that. It all comes down to this conclusion. If we can say that biblical immortality is correctly understood as what Adam and Eve temporarily possessed, when they were partakers of fellowship with God, when you could say in a way that God's smile. I I love to, to speak about God's smile. I have a God who smiles. I hope you do. God's smile was upon Adam and Eve every day, every hour. They were in fellowship. They were his blessed possession. They were the apple of his eye. They knew his shining presence. They didn't need a Bible to read. They knew God face to face. If that was what it was to possess potential immortality, listen to me. No less than that will belong to us as God's gift. And as a matter of fact, what we will experience will actually be better by far. Why? Because we will have behind us the victory of Jesus Christ. There will not be before us the potential of falling into sin again. Christ won that battle. It was decided, finished, completely resolved, and so it will never come up again. And we won't be having potential immortality. We will have immortality, period, guaranteed 
by the life of Jesus Christ. Friends, the barren idea of immortality of a human soul is actually a cheap bill of goods. And if you believe in nothing more than that, you've been sold downriver. That kind of immortality is not enough. The gospel of total resurrection in Jesus Christ offers so much more. Our high goal is not that our souls would somehow escape from a body's so-called prison. It is that our whole mind, soul, and body would be united and perfected as a well-tuned instrument in an orchestra of praise and eternal knowledge and service offered to our great God and King. It's time for an amen, Presbyterians. A well-tuned orchestra of God's resurrected people. I can't think of anything better than that. Eternal life in restored fellowship with God is mankind's finest and greatest good. I urge you to cling to Christ, that you might have God's very life and have it abundantly. Because alongside this wonder of gospel promises, mere soul survival, is not enough for you or me. Thanks be to God. Our Father, help us to go deeper into these things, and yet in one sense we need not go deeper than to pause before the wonder of Jesus come to life for us and giving us his life begun now and completed at the great day of resurrection. Father, help us to avoid deceptions and follies that entice people. Help us even to avoid our own foolish imaginations and designs in this regard. Thank you for the wonder of resurrection hope. In Jesus' name, amen.